So moving on, so I joined Facebook. Uh, when, when I joined, it was about 10 people uh, in the first handful of engineers. And on my second day at Facebook, Mark walks in, and he's like, hey, you should write the Facebook search engine. I'm like, what do you mean? I have no idea how to write a Facebook search engine. Nobody taught me how to do that. And he looks me straight in the face, and he's like, yeah, but nobody taught me how to write Facebook. So if I can write Facebook, why can't you write the Facebook search engine? I'm like, yeah, that makes logical sense. Uh, so you know, I'm a big fan of logic. So I think that, and then I, it took me about three or four months, but I wrote the Facebook search engine. Uh, and after that, I helped to uh, write Facebook newsfeed, uh, the Facebook ads platform. Uh, and I was the first engineering manager there, the first engineering director. And I think that the big lesson from that whole Facebook story was that if you're an entrepreneur, almost by definition, nobody's done what you're doing. Because if it was already done, then why the hell are you doing it? Hi, this is Vladimir from The Family. Welcome to our podcast. If you are an ambitious European entrepreneur, if you want to learn to be with peers, to be with people just like you, I have a little secret for you. There is a whole family of entrepreneurs waiting for you to join. What do we do? We have customized support for entrepreneurs all across Europe. We help them with education, services, access to capital. We have a combined valuation of our portfolio that is around $3.5 billion today and it's just the beginning. So feel free to follow us, feel free to join us and subscribe to our podcast for always more content about what does it mean to be an ambitious founder today in Europe and what does it take in terms of mindset, in terms of knowledge, in terms of bravery to build huge companies today in Europe. And today's episode is with a speaker that is a perfect example of what ambition truly means. A perfect example of how flexibility and being able to adapt yourself to changes, being curious, taking risks can be super impactful differentiators in the long run for your entrepreneurial adventure. Aritya Agarwal was Dropbox's CDO after working at Oracle where he wasn't able to grow as a coder and as an individual he came across Mark Zuckerberg in 2005. He joined the company when there were 10 people. On the second day, he started to build Facebook's search engine and stayed in the company for many, many years, seeing it grow to the size that we know today. He then left the company to start one as an entrepreneur with his wife. And this company was bought by Dropbox, where he then became the VP of engineering and then CTO. He talked about many, many topics with us and with Erika Badista, our director on stage. Why do you need to work with people you love? Why do you need patience to build really long-term companies? How do you maximize impact during your career? This one is truly inspirational. Thank you. All right. So first of all, thank you for the uh, super warm welcome. Uh, it's always such a pleasure and an honor to talk to founders, engineers, and entrepreneurs, uh, my favorite people. So what I thought we'd do today is I'll walk you through uh, my story uh, in technology in Silicon Valley uh, and share some lessons that I've learned through that journey. So what I'll start off with is you know, me uh, at the age of 22 uh, graduating from college. So I went to university uh, at Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the USA. And when I was graduating, basically all of the smart kids in my class had this like really interesting decision to make with their lives, which is 
are you going to go work on Wall Street uh, and shuffle money around for the rest of your life? Uh, or do you want to create something that has actual value? And I remember going to all of these banks and these hedge funds and interviewing with them and walking away with the sense that, you know, essentially, like, what is the hard problem that you're actually solving? Like, did I go to university and study computer science to essentially write software for a bank? Or did I go to build products that could hopefully one day change people's lives? And I think one of the best decisions I ever made was to not go work on Wall Street in 2004, which was, you know, and at that point, Wall Street was the most interesting dominant industry in America. And instead, I ended up taking a job working at Oracle. Uh, and the job was essentially uh, hacking on the database kernel, right? And we were, and the big lesson I take away from that decision is that you have to focus on like essentially like providing real user value and working on really hard problems because that's what keeps you motivated and essentially like going for a long time. Um, so at Oracle, you were actually trying to solve a pretty hard problem. Uh, and this was a little bit ahead of its time uh, because machine learning, deep learning, uh, and so on is really sexy today. Uh, but in 2004, what we were trying to do is that what if you could make the database kernel self-healing and self-optimizing, which is that instead of needing to employ, uh, you know, most companies that essentially deploy Oracle have like an army of DBAs helping them to like run essentially the database. What if you could make the database essentially optimize and run itself? And it was a pretty cool problem to solve. Um, so, you know, I went there, started hacking on it, and I was having fun until, and I remember this conversation super clearly. Uh, until about nine months in, uh, I walked into my manager's office and I asked her, like, hey, I wrote a bunch of really good code. When is it actually going to get deployed? Like, when is the first time that a customer will essentially run this uh, and get some value from it? And she just looked me straight in the face uh, and she said, probably three more years. And I was like, wait, you mean that for three, like almost four years, I'll have no feedback on the code that I wrote? That means, like, how am I going to get better as an engineer? How am I going to know that we're actually solving real user problems? Uh, and on the day itself, I basically decided that I was going to go find another job in Silicon Valley. So uh, I started tinkering around on my own, uh, essentially, like, you know, uh, trying out some startup ideas. Uh, but in one of those um, crazy, fortuitous moments in Silicon Valley, I happened to run into Mark Zuckerberg uh, in the summer of 2005. Uh, and this was, <laughs> uh, it was interesting. How many of you have seen the Facebook movie? Uh, okay, cool. So you know that the scene in the beginning of the movie uh, where they are actually all in the Facebook house uh, and there's a zip line? That's a real story. Um, and I remember when Mark called me over, he's like, yo, you should come hang out at the house uh, and you should, you know, essentially, like, come talk to us about if you want a job here. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a formal interview. Uh, so I actually wore slacks and a shirt and I walk in and Zuck's there in his pajamas, right? <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, what's going on here? Like, is this a real company? But when I spent an hour there talking to them about why they were building what they were building, some of the technology challenges, I remember thinking that I've never used Facebook because it launched at my university after I graduated, but this is a, a set of people and an environment that I want to be around. And it doesn't actually matter as much exactly what I'm working on as long as I'm doing it with people that I love. Uh, and that's the second big lesson from Facebook, which was that you want to focus on hard problems. That was my first lesson. But if you're not doing it in an environment that you love showing up to every day, you cannot give it your all. So you need both of those. So moving on, so I joined Facebook. Uh, when, when I joined, it was about 10 people uh, in the first handful of engineers. And on my second day at Facebook, Mark walks in and he's like, hey, you should write the Facebook search engine. I'm like, what do you mean? I have no idea how to write a Facebook search engine. Nobody taught me how to do that. And he looks me straight in the face and he's like, yeah, but nobody taught me how to write Facebook. 
So if I can write Facebook, why can't you write the Facebook search engine? I'm like, yeah, that makes logical sense. Uh, so you know, I'm a big fan of logic. So I think that, and then I, it took me about three or four months, but I wrote the Facebook search engine. Uh, and after that, I helped to uh, write Facebook newsfeed, uh, the Facebook ads platform. Uh, and I was the first uh, <coughs> engineering manager there, the first engineering director. And I think that the big lesson from that whole Facebook story was that if you're an entrepreneur, almost by definition, nobody's done what you're doing. Because if it was already done, then why the hell are you doing it? Right? So you have to be comfortable like waking up every day and knowing that, okay, nobody's done what I've, what I've done before, but I'm the best person in the world to be able to solve this. Because I'm motivated enough, and I actually like, can essentially trust myself enough to do it. Right? Because it's so easy to get psyched out when you're at a startup, where you're just like, wow, this is really hard. I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, that's why you're doing the startup. If you knew if it was possible, then probably somebody would have already done it. Um, so the Facebook experience was an insane rocket ship ride for five and a half, six years. Uh, and then I left mostly because I felt that uh, I wasn't learning quickly enough, uh, which is an odd thing to say uh, for a company that went from you know, 500,000 users when I joined to about 800 million when I left. Uh, so, you know, but anyways, I have high expectations. Uh, so I left uh, and I asked myself, okay, what is, the, what is the hardest thing that you can tackle? So I thought, okay, I went to college. Uh, I joined a big company. Uh, I joined a small company that became a big company. Uh, so hence, I should go start my own company because I've never done that before. Uh, and that's how I can really put myself into the most uh, uncomfortable zone for myself. Uh, so me, along with uh, two co-founders from, uh, from Facebook, one of whom was my wife, uh, we started a company called Cove, uh, which was trying to build modern collaboration software. Um, and Cove was probably the hardest thing uh, I've ever done in my life because, well, there are many reasons, but one of the big ones was that when you're used to a company like Facebook with the rate of growth that we saw, you tend to become really impatient. And you're asking yourself, okay, I'm working on this startup, why are they not essentially growing at the same rate as Facebook? Uh, and you know, you don't, as you get older, as I got older, I realized those are not realistic expectations. Uh, a company like Facebook comes around once every generation. Um, so what you really need to learn is how to be patient and build a long-term company. Because by definition, building a long-term company takes the long term. Right? It's not going to happen overnight, and you have to keep at it. So we've been working in the startup for about 18 months uh, when Dwinaraj, who had been good friends for a while, essentially you know, kind of came to me and my co-founders and they said that, hey, this thing that you guys are working on, which is this modern collaboration software, it's actually a big part of what we want to achieve in the long run as well. So why don't you come on board and essentially like join forces? And so we were pretty convinced by that argument because one of the big things that uh, Mark at Facebook had taught us is that as a founder, as a CEO, it's too easy to get focused on essentially the ego part of being kind of like the boss. Whereas like, if you're really motivated by the mission and the impact, then you owe it to yourself to ask yourself, is there some other company that is working on essentially the same thing that I'm working on that will help me achieve that mission and impact earlier, right? Uh, so we were convinced by uh, Dunarash's argument, and they were amazing people. Uh, and they kind of checked all of the other boxes that I'd learned through my career, working on hard problems, check, working with a group of people that I love, check, working on essentially things that I'd never done before, essentially leading the entire engineering team, check. Um, so I joined Dropbox in uh, just about five years ago, actually, uh, in February of 2012. And it's been a crazy ride so far. Uh, we have grown from uh, 70 people uh, to upwards of uh, 17 or 1,800 today. Uh, we were all you know, essentially in an office that was about this big when I joined. And now we're in 12 offices across the world. 
Uh, we have grown from uh, less than 50 million users to upwards of half a billion users today. Uh, and we have grown from very little revenue to a lot, uh, which, <laughs> which I won't give the numbers for. Uh, but I think it's been, uh, it's been fascinating that through this journey, uh, just to try to be able to like essentially pattern match, like what are the lessons that were constant at Facebook versus pretty different at Dropbox. Uh, and the one thing I'll share that I think is fascinating about this is that both of those companies uh, in many ways are very similar, but in like some pretty interesting ways are fundamentally different as well. Uh, and I think the most interesting one for me is highlighted by essentially a value that we really cared about at Facebook versus the value that we really cared about at Dropbox. Uh, and the one is at Facebook was move fast and break things. And when you hear that value today, you're like, oh, yeah, obviously you want to iterate quickly. You want to fail fast. But as a software engineer, when you're actually being trained in your craft, what you're actually taught to do is like, the last thing you want to do is to have buggy software. Like, why would you ever want to have buggy software that doesn't actually compute? It doesn't make sense. Um, but for Facebook, which is really essentially a, a product that is completely predicated on the number of people in the network, it completely made sense for us to ignore the last 10% of perfection that you generally go for in software systems and instead like iterate really quickly. Because it didn't matter if you had the world's best social networking software if nobody was on it, right? And I contrast that with, with Dropbox, where one of our big values is sweat the details, which means we actually pride ourselves as an engineering team to get that last 10% correct. And the big reason for that is if your Dropbox did not work 10% of the time, you'd think your computer was broken. Uh, and the kinds of like workflows and the kinds of things that we enable people to do, uh, people, teams, companies, is just so mission critical in a way that at least Facebook early on ever was. And once you have those values that you believe in, it actually permeates all the way down into everything from your from your hiring to your performance reviews, essentially what you like value as a company. Uh, so I think that in some ways, again, coming back, both Dropbox and Facebook are very similar, but they're also very different in, uh, in different ways. So I think that the last lesson maybe I'll share with you is that as all of you are um, either scaling companies or starting companies, I'd encourage you to think really hard about what is it about your particular product that you know you think that what is a unique like essentially cultural aspect that you need to integrate into your company to make it succeed and not just essentially blindly follow what Dropbox has done or what Facebook has done uh, but really think of it from first principles uh, in terms of like what is important for your company to succeed um, so that in a nutshell uh, is the last 15 years of my life uh, and maybe with that we can get Erica back here for questions so, yeah, I wanted to thank you again for being here yeah. with us tonight. We're very, very happy to have you. It's a pleasure. Um, so something that you said that really struck me uh, right now when you were talking is um, you mentioned something about um, impact. Well, kind of, I'll, I'll explain myself. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, one of the reasons why a lot of people want to become an entrepreneur is because they want to have big impact in the world. And actually, what we say to them is that that is not necessarily a valid reason to become an entrepreneur because, for example, the average employee or you know, an engineer at Google or Facebook could have far more impact in the world than most startups who actually most of them fail. The people who created Google Maps, for example, the, the guys who created you know, Facebook at work right now, um, they're having much more impact in the world than your average startup. So how, how do you feel about that? And, and, and how does it feel to have worked for companies that have had a huge impact in the world? I'll answer the last part first because that's the easier one. I think that the one thing I think about when it terms of um, so the work that we, do, uh, we did at Facebook and we're doing today at Dropbox is how satisfying it is to wake up every day and to know that nobody can ever take that away from you. 
it doesn't actually matter like what the stock price is, what the valuation is. Like the big thing that matters is that you build something that a lot of people care about, right? And that's something that you can take with you to your grave and like really feel as though like there was a life well lived and there was something that like you made, well, you made an impact really. Um, but when I come back to thinking about like how you should think about your calculus for what you want to do, I think having a big impact is obviously one part of it, but you also need to be working in an environment that you find like personally satisfying, creative, and like really like gets you going, right? Because I think the flip side of working at a, um, I won't use Facebook as an example, that's an amazing company, uh, but you know the flip side of working at a company like Oracle is that you are building good software, but it's an environment that is not like really getting the best out of you. So I think you need to both be in an environment that really motivates you, be working on a big problem that you care about, and also be in a place that's like forcing you to learn. Uh, so you kind of need to check all the boxes, I think. Yeah. I, I obviously agree. <laughs> so I read that you grew up in seven different countries. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? And Yeah, my father used to move around a lot for work. Uh, so I was born in India, uh, but I lived in Cameroon in Africa, uh, in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, uh, in Thailand for a bit, and China as well. Um, and it's, it's interesting. You know, I wonder if like one of the reasons why I'm pretty comfortable with change, uh, especially where I work, is because early on, uh, I realized there was so much, volatility is the wrong word, but comfort with change in kind of like, you know, where essentially growing up. So I grew up in 24 different houses. So we used to move around quite a bit. And you kind of realize that like, you don't take anything for granted and it's always, you're kind of aware you are where you are and you're kind of pretty comfortable changing it up. So I think one of the reasons maybe I'm so comfortable with going you know, to new initiatives in my work part of my life is because of this implicit thing that my, my mom and dad taught me growing up. Just to continue on the on the personal stuff, mm -hmm. um, I have to admit I did a decent amount of online stalking <laughs> before this interview. <laughs> I went on your Facebook and everything. Yeah. Um, so um, I actually read about your you and your wife's story, mm -hmm. which I thought was a very beautiful one. Um, actually, I think a movie should be made out of it. <laughs> well, she's um, a pretty one in the family, so yeah, okay. <laughs> so basically, you guys met um, during your studies, mm -hmm. then you worked together at Oracle, mm -hmm. and then you worked together at Facebook, where she was actually the first female engineer. Um, then you guys went on to co-found a startup together, which was acquired by Dropbox, where she also joined as an employee, and then she later left to pursue a career in venture capital. Um, and you also became a father last right, year. That's Congratulations. the latest project, yes. I know everything about you now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, first of all, um, obviously you're a big um, uh, in favor of, of working yeah. with your partner or spouse, but can you tell us a little bit more about that, what it's like, and what are maybe the advantages of, of doing that? <laughs> um, you know, I think, I, I get this question often, it's a great question. Um, what I'd say is that it really is uh, what you're looking for from your spouse and kind of like in general, like your your family life and your setup, right? So the, what I've found is that because I have somebody who is working with me on the projects that I care about every day, uh, there's never a dull moment between the two of us because there's never a question of like, hey, what is the most important thing in your life? Uh, and you know, anything I talk to her about, she gets it. Like, and the cool thing is that means that when we ship something amazing. We can share that experience together in a way that is much more meaningful, as opposed to if she didn't know anything about technology. I mean, obviously, hopefully, she'd be a supportive spouse, but it wouldn't have that same level of understanding in terms of like what I'd managed to achieve. Uh, but it had its flip side, as most things do, which is that when shit's not going well, 
um, you actually don't have that space that you can sometimes need in order to have like a safe space that you come back to because you know I'll come back home I'm like hey Rooch man this shit didn't go well and she's like yeah that that, that was pretty bad uh, <laughs> because she knows it right and so I think that ultimately um, you can either have a life that optimizes for higher highs uh, at the potential of lower lows right in terms of your own psychology or you can seek more stability and I think it's not a surprise that uh, as entrepreneurs uh, you kind of always are you know, drawn towards a higher highs. So it's not surprising to me that this is a consistent life decision that I've made, uh, both in terms of how I've approached my career and also how I've, uh, my wife has chosen me, I did not choose her, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What about work-life balance, if there is any, I, especially now? I wouldn't say that, um, that that's, I, would, I wouldn't say that I'm great at that yet. Uh, I think one of the things that's been interesting in having a, a child is that you know, so okay, so there was Ruchi living with me in our house. So she obviously understands technology. My three-year, my three-month-old son does not give a shit about technology, right? And it's been really interesting to kind of have this amazing new being in my life that does not care about anything that I thought was the most important thing since I started working. And that is when you like, I think work-life balance prior, at least for me, prior to having a kid, was not something I really understood. Uh, but it's actually one of my 2017 New Year resolutions, which is to get to the point where work-life balance is just not something that you that you're shooting for because it sounds like the right thing to do, but it's something because there's this new person in my life who actually really needs it from me uh, in a way that you know we need to we need to come to balance with that, uh, which which is going to be an interesting challenge, but I really want to figure that out. Yeah. Um, so going back to the Facebook early days, mm -hmm. you already mentioned that uh, briefly earlier, but I wanted to know what, what that was like. You were one of the first 10 employees at Facebook. You joined when there were 700,000 or less than a million, less than a million users. active users. Mm -hmm. And when you left, six years later, there were 700, 700 million. 700 or 800 million, yeah. Yeah, and um, you were overseeing 2,000 engineers, something like that? No, no, I think the, engineer, I'm, uh, the engineering team was probably... Uh, maybe 500? Yeah, yeah, okay. So but anyway, what was it like working at the house in, in the early days at Facebook? Um, it didn't feel like work. It felt that every day you woke up and you basically had this thing that you really cared about and it really felt like your baby and you went to the office and you hung out with your friends for like 14, 15 hours like trying to solve this problem. And it was always, it was so much um, chaos because every day you'd walk in and you'd be like, this is the set of things I think I'm supposed to do, but you probably end up doing 50% different things. So it always felt like a new challenge. And we never stopped back to think. There's, there's, there's no, there was no time to actually think about even like what we, the rocket ship that we were on because it literally was you wake up, you shower, you go to work, uh, you come back home, you fall asleep, and you kind of do that again, you know, um, six or seven days a week. Uh, but it was, just, it was just so much adrenaline. This is the sense of like we are on this shared... Uh, adventure together, uh, and come hell or high water, regardless of essentially how successful we might be, my God, we're going to have fun along the way, right? And you're doing it with a bunch of friends, and there's just no way that that will ever end badly. Like, if you could look back on any time period in your life and you said, yeah, I had three years jamming on shit with my friends, it's like, yeah, that's, you're going to feel a sense of success, right? Like, regardless of exactly how it turns out. Um, so I think that, interestingly enough, like, and these, these were decidedly less um, frothy days in Silicon Valley, but we never at Facebook ever thought about 
like valuation, about like stock price. This is not even something that occurred to us because all we were just focused on is like, let's like write code with our friends, right? Um, which is, yeah, those are pretty magical times. Yeah, yeah I bet. Um, so more about, you know, your transition to Dropbox mm -hmm. um, and joining the company. So basically you, you came at a time where you were transitioning from a more um, personal software um, mm -hmm. strategy to a more business mm -hmm. uh, one. And how was it like, how did you manage the transition with the engineering teams and, and what has changed since you joined Dropbox? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a great question because um, <coughs> Dropbox is this unique company which obviously started off as this amazing uh, consumer file syncing and storage tool. And you know, kind of on the back of that, we got to like hundreds of millions of users. Um, but along the way, it also was very apparent was that we were providing a tremendous amount of value to people in like companies, big and small across the spectrum. So the challenge that we, we have in front of us and you know, like we have done a good job of solving is that how do you retain the DNA of a consumer company essentially like focusing on the user, simplicity, design, uh, while also understanding that if you are building software for businesses, then you have a much higher bar for like reliability, performance, and uptime. And I think it's really important that you not go too far in either direction, because I think that the temptation of a pure consumer software company is that you don't spend enough time really listening to your customers, and you're basically essentially like building things from your intuition and your vision. And I think the temptation of an enterprise software company sometimes is almost like listening too much to your customers and not actually having a strong point of view in terms of like the product that you want to build. So I think that once you internalize that, again, this is one of those interesting cases, right, which is there has been no enterprise software company built in the history of technology that has managed to span both, you know, one leg in the consumer world and one leg in the enterprise software world. So once you realize that nobody's kind of done this before, then it kind of frees you up to almost think about these things from first principles and really think about, like, what is the exact structure of our engineering team, our product team, our design team, our customer service team, such that all of them are able to build together and really, like, span the gamut of, like, Okay, we're going to build like a consumer company, but we're going to sell in some sense like an enterprise software company and listen to our customers. Uh, so I think that's been the biggest change, which is like, how do we not really think of ourselves as either one, but this new modern hybrid, uh, which is really like in between. Yeah, absolutely. And also it came at a time where um, B2B software was starting to look a lot more like B2C software. Like I, yeah. I read somewhere like you actually realized that the software you were building for individuals was something that companies also wanted. They were expecting yeah. the same kind of um, familiarity in, in the user yeah. interface. Yeah, because it's kind of insane, right? If you kind of think about the functionality and the capabilities that we have in our personal part of our life versus the work part of our life, some of these differences are fr frankly like just ins insane to me. I can search through all of the human knowledge ever created in any language that I want in one second on my phone right now. Like, I can do that for you, right? Yet if I asked you, can you search through, like, all of the information that your company has produced in the last one week, it's still an unsolved problem. Like, it's why does this disparity exist? And when you ask yourself that question, you start realizing that it's because of the way that B2B software has been essentially built and sold for the last, like, 20 years. Because historically, we were essentially building for the buyer, not for the user. Because the only way you could get your software into a company was that you would go beg, wine and dine, the CIO, the IT administrators to be like, hey, can you please deploy my software in your company? And often that was like a 
six, 12, you know, 15 month process before you had the first chance of actually having anything uh, deployed to the company. And then you'd only release software, and I'm kind of repeating my soft, uh, Oracle days, you'd only release the software once every two or three years, which meant that like over a 20 year horizon, you'd get 10 shots on goal to like actually improve your software. And you compare that to a company like Facebook, Google, or us, we are shipping like hundreds of experiments on a daily basis. And, each of, and for each of those experiments, the majority of them are going to fail, but I know that like every day, our product and our software is getting better. And this is like this evolution cycle and evolution speed that we've just never seen in like B2B software. So I'm actually really excited. And also, because you're focusing on the user, uh, you actually get to build stuff that people want, not people think that they want, right? Um, so I'm actually really excited about the future of uh, modern business software, modern enterprise software, because I think our experiences at work deserve to be a lot better than they are today. Yeah, yeah. totally agree. Um, so just to get back to the your role as a CTO when mm -hmm. managing and scaling a, uh, an engineering team of a company that is doing times 10 every year. Um, <laughs> so that's a lot of people to hire. And obviously, um, hiring is a big problem for a big yeah. topic for any startup. So mm -hmm. how do you compete with talent in the Valley? How do you compete, retain, and attract talent there? I think that the biggest thing, um, I think the biggest thing that I've seen that engineers are looking for is, is the problem that you're trying to solve big enough? Like, can you paint a picture for them as to like, why is what you're trying to do just like fundamentally hard? Um, because I think that it's easy to think of engineers as kind of being like these super, um, like regimented, like linear thinkers, but I actually think the best engineers are way closer to essentially like, you know, artists who are kind of like more motivated by what is the most ambitious, insane project that I can work on so that when I look back on my career, I can be like, I actually achieved some like crazy shit, right? Um, so I think step one is like, can you essentially ensure that your problems are big enough? And thankfully at Dropbox, like if you're trying to build an internet scale file system, both for like normal users and for every company in the world, we, we're fortunate to actually like be tackling a really big problem. Uh, the second part of it is, um, and this makes my job a little hard sometimes, I was talking to Adrian about this, is that the best engineers uh, don't really want to be told what to do. Uh, like, can you create an environment uh, that really like allows them to express their creativity in a way that uh, is not top-down structured? So we have this great uh, quote at Dropbox that I really believe in, which is that as a management team, our job is to provide st strategic guidance. So we believe that like 80% of strategy comes top down. And that really means like which areas are we gonna compete in, which areas are we essentially gonna play in, uh, and why that makes sense. But true innovation actually happens 80% bottoms up. Right? I'm not writing code on a daily basis, right? I'm not you know, designing pixels. So if you can really create an environment where the problem is big enough, and like essentially the company understands like strategically why this is you know, an important place to go to, and then you give people room. You give people room to innovate, to build, to fail, and to fail fast, then I think you actually have the best of both worlds, which is people are coming to you for the right reasons, and people are staying uh, because you have created an environment that's fun to work in, and yeah. also like impactful. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things I could talk about <laughs> that topic, but you know, I read somewhere that um, on Facebook, like when you join the engineering team on day two, you're basically shipping code yeah. that's live. And I, I read that one of your challenges um, at Dropbox was to maintain that agility yep. while also ensuring the last 10% of, of perfection that you were yeah. you were talking about. And I also read something pretty amazing is that um, 
whenever one of your teams was lacking a certain um, skill, you would actually encourage people to have someone in the team learn that. Oh, yeah. um, and so, I mean, I could go on forever, but that, that's that's. Yeah, really I mean, those are amazing topics. So let we'll we'll cover some of those. Okay. <laughs> so one of the one of the big things. So a lot of the folks were pretty early engineers at Facebook. Uh, most of us didn't actually have a ton of uh, industry experience. Uh, I'd say that out of the first 10 or 15 engineers, I don't think anybody had more than uh, two years of experience. Uh, and one of the things that had really uh, rubbed all of us the wrong way is that when we joined our first company, the first thing you'd be do is to, like, is to be told that you should go read the code. Go read the architecture like diagrams, go read, like figure out how it works. But one of the really interesting side effects of that system is that what you're implicitly telling the person is that you are not qualified or good enough to work on my code base until you basically go learn shit for the first one or two months. And implicitly, what you're sending the signal is that we don't expect you to be as productive for the first six months, maybe, until you have ramped up. So the question we asked ourselves is like, OK, let's flip that around 100%. Because the message that we want every Facebook engineer and Dropbox engineer is on day two to basically be like, I am as good as everybody else here. I have the same expectations of myself. I have to ship as much code as everyone else here. And it doesn't matter if I've been here for two days or I've been here for six months. Like everybody's expected to be shipping as much code as possible. Uh, so when we kind of played that out, we were just like, oh, okay. What this means is that by day two at Dropbox and Facebook, we need to set up a system where you have your dev environment ready, you, got the, you, you have the code base downloaded, and you need to get your first bug fix in by 2 p.m. on Tuesday so it can be part of the daily push at 4 p.m. And if you didn't, it would be essentially like, you know, people would be like, whoa, dude, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't finish your first bug fix in 24 hours. Um, and I think it was a really powerful system because, you know, as the company grew, as the company scaled, um, even engineers who had come from really, you know, more traditional backgrounds really, like, accepted that as a challenge, which is like, yeah, like, obviously I'm going to ship, like, some code on my first 24 hours. Uh, but here, here was actually the interesting thing, um, which is that if you're creating an environment which is inherently somewhat risky and prone to a little bit of failure, you also have to celebrate the failure. So one of the other traditions that we have is that the first time uh, somebody, well, this was at Facebook, the first time that somebody brings down the product, or like Facebook went down in the early days, we would send an email to the whole company saying that that was success. You're moving fast enough. You brought down <laughs> Facebook. Uh, and again, it's kind of like pretty counterintuitive to set up a system that is so radical in accepting failure. But I think this is all comes back to the same quality, the value, which is if you move fast and break things, like what are the set of things that you need to do in your company to truly embrace that and to truly get people to like live that experience from day one? Because you have to indoctrinate them, right? Uh, because they're coming from pretty radically different backgrounds. Um, at Dropbox, obviously, this is a little bit trickier because you know if you bring Dropbox down every week, that's bad. Uh, that's really bad. Uh, so instead, what we have tried to come up with uh, is a slightly uh, softer version of essentially the fail fast, which is like we have invested a lot, essentially, our internal like build systems, our internal testing, so that we can ensure that um, we know before a product, you know, kind of like a change goes out to our entire user base, we'll know it because it breaks for the whole, like the company first, as opposed to our entire user base. Uh, so we've, so at Facebook, uh, famously, uh, we didn't write any unit tests for the first like few hundred engineers we were there because we were just like, why write a unit test if you can just release to everyone and see what breaks? Uh, and at Dropbox, it's pretty radically different where we, we, we've invested a lot more uh, in internal testing and kind of like phased rollouts. Thank you. <laughs> and I really wanted to thank you. Uh, before you went on stage, you told me that you were tired, but I wish I had half of your energy when I'm tired. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> you were great.
Thank you guys and uh, let's give them a big Thank round of applause. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. Of course, we have a lot of episodes already on the podcast. A lot of them are coming also, so subscribe. You can check our YouTube channel, Startup Food, our medium, The Family as well, our website, thefamily.co, if you want to apply or just learn more stuff about what we do. It's always a pleasure to share content. We do it with love and with a paid-forward mindset. So if you like it, just show the support by leaving a comment, leaving a small rate on the podcast, or by sending us heart emojis on Messenger as well. We accept those with a lot of gratitude. See you next week.